Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Matthew chapter 16 will be in this morning. Matthew 16. Hmm. All right, let's pray over the word. Lord, we love you. We honor your word as holy, inspired, infallible. Lord, as we examine it this morning, we ask for the fresh breath of the Holy Spirit. Lord, every word that comes out of my mouth from your heart, I pray it would pierce and cut. Lord, every word that's not from you, I pray it would slide right over heads. Lord, we're not here for any other reason other than to encounter you, to know you. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's a great, great privilege to have. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. It was common for musicians, um, artists, to mark their sheet music or their art with symbols that reference an old Latin phrase, um, soli dea gloria. So Bach, for instance, on, on every piece of sheet music, Bach wrote SDG on the bottom, which uh, stood for soli dea gloria, which means to gl- the glory to God alone. Only God receives glory. It was a common phrase. It was a very much a part of church history. In modern church culture, we don't talk much about the theological concept of the glory of God, but it's thoroughly biblical and very important um, as you look at church history. Our church fathers thought a lot about the glory of God, wrote a lot about the glory of God, particularly in the Reformation period. Um, in our Next Steps class, we, we talked some about the five solas of the Reformation. I'm sure we've talked about it at some point here before. The five solas of the Reformation um, are, are, are five points in which we've kind of summed up nicely the arguments of the Reformers against the Roman Church. Um, the Reformers primarily being Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, that bunch. Um, Zwingli, Calvin, Luther would never use, ne- never listed the five solas like I'm about to give you, but but they very much sum up their arguments. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, a, it's a later thought, but it sums up their arguments really nicely. And so the five solas are these. Solia gratia, which means grace alone, meaning you are justified only by the grace of God. Sola fide means faith alone. You are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the, the only means by which you're saved. You're not saved by grace and faith plus your own works. You're not saved by grace through faith plus the fact that you helped the homeless plus the fact that you gave money to the church. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And the next one is sola Christus in Christ alone. Christ is the only means by which any man is justified before God. No one will stand before God on the last day and be justified by their own works. They will not be mediated based upon any other person's life. The Reformers are arguing you can't pray to Mary for atonement. Mary can't mediate for you. She's not a co-redemptress. The Reformers are arguing there's no there's no biblical reason to pray to a saint. Saints can't mediate for you. Christ alone is the mediator. So you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ Jesus alone. 
The next point was sola scriptura, which is the primarily the one we talk about. Sola scriptura means as revealed in the scriptures alone. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, which are our sole and primary source of authority. So the reformers again are arguing that the Pope cannot supersede the authority of the scripture. No pastor can supersede the authority of the scripture. No man or woman with a prophetic title can supersede the authority of the scriptures. The scriptures alone are our authority. Sola Scriptura was the argument of our church fathers. And the last one is the one that I want to focus on today that we don't talk about much. Um, soli Dea Gloria, to the glory of God alone was the final. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, unto the glory of God. No one else receives an ounce of glory for your salvation, for your redemption. The reformers loved the scripture, Isaiah 42, verse 8, in which the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. My glory I give to no other, the KJV translated. My glory I will share with no other. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. This is that famous prayer from Ephesians, you know. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church. The church will glorify him. There's this moment in the life of John the Baptist where his followers, his disciples, begin to follow Jesus. And the disciples essentially say to John, what are you going to do? And John the Baptist responds with the profession of the true church. He must increase and I must decrease. The profession of every true church is Jesus must be exalted as we are humbled. He must become more in our city as we become less. There is no room for pride, arrogance, glory hungering within the church. All glory belongs to Jesus. Now, the ecclesia, that's the Greek word for church. The church that Jesus will build if you're joining us today, that's the passage that we're studying where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The ecclesia, the church that Jesus will build, is first and foremost concerned with the glory of God and the exaltation of her king. Jesus is building a church that has great reverence for his glory and is passionate about glorifying God. Listen to me. Everything I'm going to say today is directed at us, okay? Um, I, I want you to hear grace in my tone because it's going to sound like I'm being really harsh. And I'm not throwing stones at any other church. I'm talking to our church. Does that make sense? So don't interpret Caleb's words to be throwing stones at anybody this morning. I'm talking to us. With that being said, if any congregation sets out to build the church without a deep theological conviction that our chief end is to glorify God, that's what the old catechism said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If any church sets out to build the church without first being undergirded by a deep theological conviction that our end is to glorify God, that, that, that gathering will not build a church. It will merely build a congregation of individuals. 
A church that desires to participate in the mission of Jesus to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is appropriate. We are called to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But a church that tries to grow without an undergirding theological conviction that the glory of God is first and primary will begin to allow their worship to diminish and slip into mere entertainment because sinners don't want to participate in worship. Sinners want to participate in entertainment. And if we can entertain, then more people will come into the church because you've now valued the gathering above the glory of God. So the church first has to be focused on the glory of God or we will begin to maybe grow, but we won't be a church. Not the church that Jesus desires. A church that is, has set its sight on growing without set its heart on the glory of God will walk away from biblical expository preaching because sinners are not hungry to hear the preaching of the word. They would rather hear Comedy Central style stuff. It ain't no preacher that funny anyway. Um, or, or sinners would rather hear motivational speaking. We'd rather have Comedy Central or Dr. Phil. And I have a deep love-hate relationship with Dr. Phil, y'all. He gets me. I don't know why I'm stuck watching Dr. Phil. So entertaining for me for some reason. I don't know why. And, and if we... You guys, do you guys hear what I'm saying? Don't, I'm not talking about any other church. I don't want us, okay? Talking about us this morning. If we go down a road where, where we, gathering more people becomes the chief end rather than glorifying God, it would be more appropriate for me to be funny and be a motivational speaker because more people from our city might come to hear humor and motivational speaking. But it would not be a church that glorifies Jesus. And the church in the West is flirting with this line pretty, pretty closely here. Everything that happens here in our midst is to be about Jesus and for his glory. And the church that begins to slide away from the glory of God may grow numerically and they will justify their sliding away from true Spirit and truth worship, they will justify their sliding away from, from real Bible teaching and exposition by saying, look how many people we have. But the, the people are not a church unless the people are set on glorifying God. In the modern charismatic movement, which our movement was birthed from, um, we allowed spiritually gifted men or women to become the center of the show and we put them all on TV, we bought all their books, and we flocked to their crowds, and we didn't hold them accountable. No one questioned their teaching as good Bereans should. We watched the most gifted people because it was entertaining, and, and, and the gatherings weren't always church. Sometimes it was mere entertainment and good showmanship. And when a man, when a man's gifting, his receiving of praise is lifted above the, the adoration of Jesus, then you've come to celebrate a man. You've not come to celebrate Jesus. And not, that's not the ecclesia that Jesus died for. That, that showmanship. And, and I am a charismatic and very fond of the charismatic movement. I'm not saying that that happened across the board, but it did happen some. Our forefathers, church, church forefathers, 
wrote a lot about the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. They, they wrote and talked a lot about this distinction. The visible church, according to our church forefathers, is the people who participate in the life of a congregation. They may be church members. They may come to potlucks. They may participate in Bible studies. The visible church is what you see with your eyes. But our church fathers always wrote that just because you were a part of the visible church did not mean that you were a part of the invisible church. And so a, a pastor or a congregation can get so caught up in, in, in building a bigger crowd that they may build a bigger congregation, but they're not actually building a bigger church because the invisible church are those unique people who have been born again by the Spirit of God and belong to God in a covenantal relationship and, and by whom they cry, Abba, Father. And Jesus says, on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. And so those people participate in the visible church, but they never belong to the invisible church, the true church that Jesus died for. And so when we start talking about building the church, we first have to talk about the glory of God being central to our, our, found, our foundational culture. It's about glorifying Jesus. And we're after building the invisible church, those who really belong to God. It's just not about more people in the room. It's more people in the room whose hearts have bowed to the lordship of Jesus and have been born again by the Holy Ghost. So in theory, a church's attendance could be 10,000 people, while the church down the street's attendance could be 10 people. And if the church who has a 10,000 people attendance has no real gospel proclamation and no real born again experience, and the church down the street with 10 people has real gospel proclamation and real born again experience, then the 10 person church is a bigger church than the 10,000 people church, because the 10 person church is a real church. So, for instance, and I'm, I'm not trying to be offensive, I'm being honest. Um, there may be a Mormon congregation or a Jehovah's Witness congregation that's bigger than our congregation. We are a bigger church than that congregation because they're not a true church. They're just a gathering of people. Do you follow our, the logic there? And, and so, at the, at the end of the day, it's about people really being born again. Jesus really being exalted. The glory of God being revered. With that being said, I'm thoroughly committed to the concept of church growth. I think that we, if we're not trying to reach the nations, we're not trying to preach the gospel, if we're not growing in any way, whether it be in spiritual depth or in numerical growth, if we're, if we're stagnant, we need to ask ourselves, are we really tr at least trying to reach our community? The church should at least put an effort towards evangelism. That's not to say that they're always going to be super fruitful, but it is to say that there should be a desire to obey the commission of Jesus to grow, to bring the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Yet we also carry the conviction, the understanding that you can have stadiums full of people and have no church at all unless Jesus is at the very center of the congregation. And that's where the entire conversation we're going to have this morning stems. 
Are we trying to build a following or are we trying to build a church? Every pastor, every leader, every worship leader, every volunteer, every person who really loves their church. Remember when everyone had shirts that said, I love my church, has to ask themselves the question, am I trying to build a bigger following for my group so that we can feel successful or are we trying to advance the gospel of Jesus? Is this about us or is this about the glory of God? And I can't answer that question for anyone, and I don't intend to. I just intend to put it on us. Sometimes in church culture, there's a bit of a competitive spirit. Churches trying to outgrow other churches, and that's driven by a deep lack of understanding of the glory of God because men are raising their heads up trying to outdo other men in hopes that bigger numbers means more success, just like any other business, and it's not about the glory of Jesus. And if it's not about the glory of Jesus, I don't want to do it, y'all. We, at our core, should be about savoring the glory of Jesus And exalting his name. The distinction between a crowd and a church. Is whether or not the glory of God is central. I want you to remember that the distinction of a crowd and a church is whether or not the glory of God is central. I pray that you attend this congregation because you experience and encounter the glory of God here. I pray that you come here because you experience true worship and you sense God's presence and you sense that Jesus is centered. I I hope that you don't participate in the culture that says I go to this church because I think that this pastor's funny. I hope you don't come here because you think I'm funny. My kids don't think I'm funny. Okay. I hope that you come here because you're passionate about the glory of God and you sense a real heart in this church to honor his glory. Soli Dea Gloria, unto the glory of God alone. God alone receives glory. God, God alone is the glorious one. So we'll move to our passage this morning in Matthew 16. We'll read verses 13 through 18 again. Again, if you're just joining us, We're taking six weeks to look at the words of Jesus when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll read the whole context of the statement. But today, I primarily want to focus on the pronouns of the statement. When Jesus says, I will build my church. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember last week we discussed the fact that the church's primary mission is to answer the question, who is Jesus? And our response to that question is that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the anointed redeemer of all creation, and he is the unique son of God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The pronouns here, I tell you, I will build my church. The church is first The pronouncement of Jesus. I will. I tell you. It's his work. I will build. And it's his possession. My church. The church is for Jesus. 
It belongs to no man. No man can possess a church. Not a true church. This is not my church. This is not your church. If we are a true church, this is the church of Jesus. It belongs to him. It is for his glory. The church is first about him. It does not exist to highlight the giftings of any man. The church is not a vehicle by which a man or woman could stand up in front of a crowd and put on display his great giftings in order to receive the accolades of the crowds. The church is not for that. The church is not a place to put on display great intellect or great artistry. The church is not a place in which a man or woman can rise in the ranks and put on display his great leadership in order to be applauded. The church exists only to exalt Jesus. He says, it's my church to exalt Jesus and to proclaim to the earth that your coming king is victorious. We are to relish his nature, his character, to live totally infatuated with his goodness, to sing his praise, to tell the story of redemption. It's not a church unless it Unless the congregation bows low in adoration. Are you really here to bow before Jesus today? Pronouns. I tell you, I will build my church. The pronouns tell us what kind of gathering this ecclesia is to be. Last week, we discussed the fact that Jesus' earthly ministry was aimed at building a church. He called disciples in order to raise up future leaders for the church, made them apostles. He taught with the intention of the disciples, carrying on that teaching for generations. He went to the cross in order to buy our salvation, to redeem a particular people out of the earth. All of his earthly ministry was aimed at a church. And this week, we'll ask the question, how is Jesus actively building the church after his ascension? And we'll answer that question for a couple of weeks. But the primary answer is this. Jesus will build his church by sending the Holy Spirit. So often we want to answer that question first by saying Jesus will build his church by sending us. It's an incredibly theologically shallow response. Jesus first builds his church by the sending of the Holy Ghost. The Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit. The sending of Jesus by the Father initiates the coming of the kingdom of God while the sending of the Spirit by Jesus will display and declare that coming. The Trinity is on a mission. Our triune God is missionary in essence. The Holy Ghost is the first and primary missionary. The Holy Spirit is the first plan of God to build the church. Jesus never says to the disciples, it's better for you that I go. I'll send you pastors. It's better for you that I go. I'll send you deacons and elders and prophets and apostles. No, he says, it's better for you that I go. I'll send you the spirit. So as Jesus prepares to leave the earth, his first plan, his primary plan to build his church is to send the Holy Spirit. It's not true that we are the ones to carry and build the church solely. Not, not, we, we only participate in the building of the church as we are submitted to the Holy Ghost. 
God does not need my strategies. God doesn't even need my energy. God doesn't need my vocal cords. I am only effective in building the church as I am submitted to the leadership, the leadership of the Holy Spirit and empowered by the strength of the Holy Spirit. We only accomplish anything by the Holy Spirit. My words have no effect unless they are anointed by the Spirit of God. We can pass the inter- information through our brains, but only the Spirit of God can cause a dead man to come to life again. I can scream at graveyards all day long till I'm blue in the face, but the people in the graves will be dead as a doornail unless the voice of the Holy Ghost speaks. If the Spirit is the originator, the empower, and the active leader of a congregation, then it is a true church. But if the Spirit is not involved in the work, then from the perspective of heaven, it's a mere gathering and not a true church. Now, there may be people who belong to the invisible church within the gathering, but the gathering itself is not solely dedicated to the glory of God. Without the Spirit, there is no church. He is the most important person in the room today. Not me. Don't you ever think that I'm the most important person in the room. Don't you ever think that it's our eldership or our staff or our deacons or our ministry team leads. The the most important person in the room this morning is the Holy Spirit. He is the head. He is the leader. He is the empower. And our best and deepest prayer is that he would show up. So we cannot start talking about building the church without our starting place being the missionary nature of the Trinity and the commissioning of the Holy Spirit to the earth. Today, as we consider the glory of God as the center of the church, we must first consider the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the central builder of the church. So first, let's talk about the Old Testament promises concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah Chapter 44, verse 3, reads this. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Isaiah prophesies that there is a coming day when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the earth. And the descendants of Israel will spring up like willows by flowing streams and declare, I am the Lord's. The future outpouring of the Spirit is a promise concerning the last days in which people will spring up like willows and declare, I belong to the Lord. Without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit... No man springs up without the drawing of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration work of the Holy Spirit. No man springs up. Isaiah says the Holy Spirit will cause men to spring up again. I can scream till I'm blue in the face, but without the Holy Spirit, no man springs up. It's his unique work. Joel chapter two, verse 28 through 29. Joel writes, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. 
And of course, this is the passage that, that Peter points to in Acts chapter 2. As tongues of fire descend on the disciples and they begin to preach the gospel in unknown tongues. Peter says that today the words of Joel have been fulfilled for you. That God will in the last days pour out his spirit on all flesh and sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Even on bond servants, I'll pour out my spirit. Peter declares on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that today begins the day of the outpouring of of the Spirit. Of course, Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 47 that there would be a river that would flow from the temple and cause salt water to turn fresh and dead things to come alive, that the Spirit of God would consume creation. So according to Old Testament prophecies, the last days are the period in which the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the earth in order to bring dead men to life. And so according to Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament implications, we live in the last days, and the last days is the unique age in which the ministry of the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of the earth. We live in the hour of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we are to participate in the ministry of God to the earth today, we have to submit to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the plan of God for the earth today. Consider next the words of Jesus concerning the work of the Spirit. We'll skim John, the Gospel of John. First, he says that the Holy Spirit will teach us and remind us of Jesus' teaching. John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is the first teacher of the church. Again, my teaching, any teaching in the house, preaching is only effective as it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is in the teaching and preaching, then there is life-giving power. Next, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world will come to the conclusion that it is guilty of sin and in need of the, the cleansing blood of Jesus based upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A man or woman will not be saved until he first recognizes that he needs salvation as he is convicted by the Holy Spirit. The church today is not always fond of conviction, but it's a clear sign of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a church. Condemnation is to be rejected, yes. But when the Spirit of God comes on a man or woman to convict them of their sin, it's not our job to pat them on the back and let them off the hook. It's our job to press them towards the cross of Jesus, to receive forgiveness. Conviction is God's intent to lead us to the revelation that we need atonement. Next. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. John 16, verse 13 through 14. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He does not speak on his own authority, but when he speaks, it will be what he's heard from the voice of heaven, from the Father, and it will glorify Jesus. It will exalt the Lamb of God. Next, the Spirit brings about regeneration. The Spirit brings about the born-again process is what that means. When, when, a, when a dead, guilty heart of flesh, a heart of stone is transformed to heart of flesh, when the law of God is written on our heart, when, we're, when we pass from death to life, all of that is the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. So the Spirit of God is on the earth today drawing individuals towards the gospel. And I don't think that's this arbitrary sense of every person's being drawn in the exact same way at the exact same time. But the Spirit of God is uniquely and individually, actively drawing individuals in your family, individuals at your workplace, individuals you encounter on the street or in public. God is uniquely drawing them through circumstances, through impressions, through dreams and visions. We know this from the Middle East. The Holy Spirit is actively drawing people unto Jesus and no man comes to Christ alone. He comes as he's drawn by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, no man can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John chapter three, verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. A man or woman may be able to bring you to tears as they tell moving stories. A man or woman may be able to help you to feel motivated to take on life in your 2020 ambitions. A man or woman may be able to make you laugh and roll and feel like you have a positive outlook on your own life. But no man or woman can cause you to be born again. And by God, that's what you really need. It's the spirit of God's work. On the last day, no man or woman will say, Billy Graham saved me. They will say, the Spirit of God drew me to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade, maybe. Or as Billy Graham preached, I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to respond to the gospel. I felt convicted of my sin. And as I came to the altar and I confessed Jesus as the Lord, it was like something was shifting in my heart as God began to transform my life. The, the, no man will say, Billy Graham saved me. He will say, the cross of Jesus saved me as the Holy Spirit applied the benefit of that work through his unique ministry and unique power. We need the Holy Spirit. And Billy Graham will be honored on the last day, I'm sure. But he was only effective as he was yielded to the Spirit. Micah, if you want to worship team, somebody wants to go ahead and come for me. I won't be much longer. So first and foremost, Jesus will build his church by the sending of the Holy Spirit. And if a church is concerned with the glory of God, that church will not attempt to build itself without the active ministry 
of the Holy Spirit without prioritizing the person of the Holy Spirit. I know that preaching the word today in an expository style or or trying to preach straight from the scriptures and, and expound upon what it says is not always trendy. But the word of God is spirit breathed. My ideas, my intellect, I could get up here and give you the best motivational speak that I could conjure. My ideas are not spirit breathed. The word of God is. And, and while your ears may be tickled by a man or woman who shares good stories or good information or even doctrine that makes you feel good, your ears, the scripture calls that the, the tickling of ears, the itching of ears. You may feel somewhat satisfied by it. It is not what you need. You need the life-giving power of the breath of the Spirit found uniquely in the Word of God. And revival, real revival, always had preaching at its core. To say with one hand, we want God to move. We want an old-fashioned revival. We want the great awakening again. And then to say, but we don't really like your preaching. Is to spit in the face of Finney and Whitfield and Edwards. The great men who who preached down our nation with good old-fashioned Bible preaching. They changed the face of our continent by preaching the word of God. Not by sharing motivational speeches. And it's a shame Um, I'm being harsh towards us, okay? This is for you and me. It's a shame um, when churches say things like, it, it was it was fashionable for a while to say things like, we're not your grandma's church. Um, our pastor used to always say, I know you're not my grandma's church because you don't pray. Um, and my grandma's church prayed by God. Um, it's, a, it's a shame when we say things like that. Like we're, 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 we're on trend we are relevant we're a relevant church there is a sense in which the way that the way that we dress doesn't matter or if for some reason tomorrow like mustard yellow carpet became trendy and we decided we wanted to put yellow carpet in the house that is not insult the glory of god whatever that, that doesn't matter but there but there are there are some trends within the church that that don't begin by Trying to honor the glory of God. Their primary goal is not God's glory. And we've done things like saying we're going to preach in a relevant way. And what we're saying is we're not going to preach like those old people. And what we're really saying is we're not going to preach like Jonathan Edwards. We're not going to preach like Whitfield. We're not going to preach like Wesley. We're not going to preach like our church fathers. We're going to preach in a way that's relevant and impactful. And in reality, we're actually abandoning the word of God in the process. And, and it may be more relevant from, I'm, I'm being sharp, y'all. I'm, but, but I'm sharing my heart with you, okay? I'm, if you don't know me, I'm not a harsh person at all. Um, or, or stiff, by the way. Um, but, I, but I believe this. We say things like, we're going to preach relevantly. We're going to teach relevantly. We're going to teach from sermons. I'm going to go too far. I understand that the Bible is not always relevant to sinners. But when you got cancer, you don't need your back padded. You need a knife. When there's a tumor, you need that thing cut out. And I understand that 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 worship that is Christ centered may not attract sinners, but it's what sinners need. Okay. And 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 Jesus says, "I didn't come uh, for the healthy. I came for the sick." And I, the the means by which He came for the sick to bring healing was the gospel of Christ. And Christ-centered 
ministry. Our worship, as we go forward and we talk about building the church, our worship's primary focus is not entertainment. I love, I love what Francis Chan says, and I know it's a little bit harsh, but he says when people say, I didn't enjoy the worship today, he responds, that's okay, we didn't worship you like that. It actually, she wasn't for you. Um, and, and that feels a little bit harsh, but by God, it's true. Like, like if your idea is that the worship's supposed to be your favorite songs and make you feel a certain way. No, the worship is supposed to be Christ exalting. It's the moment in your week when you gather together with other members of the body of Christ and you rend your garments, tear open your heart, and you declare, you alone are worthy. You are the head of the church. You are the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the earth. I am a wretched sinner and you are glorious and majestic and holy and beautiful and wonderful. And I don't care what melody they're playing over there. It's about the exaltation of the majesty of my king. And as we think about ministry and as we think about our house and trying to build our church, we first must think about the glory of God. And by thinking about the glory of God, we will begin to think that the Spirit's ministry must be central. The Holy Ghost should be in the absolute center of everything we do. Even in our fellowship, the Spirit of God should be central. Moses prayed, God, show me your glory. I think that's the heart of the true church. We are totally enamored with the person of Jesus. And our heart's cry is, show us more of who you are. And that's why end time prophecy will say things like, in the new kingdom, in the new creation, there will be no sun. The glory of God, the light of the glory of God will fill the earth. Because the church is desperately hungry for the day when they will gaze upon the glory of God. It's meant to satisfy a desire in you which which declares, God, show me who you are. Paul wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. The glory of God is his holy and unique character by which we have fallen short in sin. So when a church continues to embrace sin, even after the coming and to Jesus, you are continually sinning against the glory of God. And the other side of that is that the church who pursues holiness in a spirit of reverence is honoring the glory of God because God's nature is uniquely glorious and uniquely holy. And so if we're going to be a church that really honors and reveres the holiness of God, we will be a church that pursues righteousness. God's presence is referred to as his glory. When there's a, a, 
a cloud that fills the temple and everyone falls. It's called the glory cloud, the glory of God, the, the fire that leads Israel through the night. It's called the glory of God. And when, when fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, that's a manifestation of God's glory. And it's to be treated with respect and reverence, not contempt. Worship should be treated with respect and reverence, not with contempt. It's not something you deal with lightly. Worship is about the glory of God. The glory of God is at stake when we come to worship. The way that we handle the word of God, the glory of God is at stake. The proper and, 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 and honest and best of my ability proclamation of the scripture is unto the glory of God. And if we teach this sloppily, then we dishonor his glory. We lack a reverence for his glory. And God says, I will share my glory with no man. He is jealous for his own glory. We must be passionate as well about the glory of God. Our gatherings are to celebrate his glory, are to honor him. To keep him central and first. We are not about the glory of any man. The glory of any movement. The glory of any ministry. Our job is not to bring admiration and praise and accolades to any man or woman. Our job is to bring accolades of praise and celebration and joy to the glory of God. Unto the glory of God. He is central. He is first. It's about him and for him. For his glory. It cannot be about anything else or it's not church. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.